When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayadabdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Eli Elinoff about his new book, Citizen Designs, Citymaking and Democracy in Northeastern Thailand, which was published in 2021 by University of Hawaii Press. Eli is Senior Lecturer in Cultural Anthropology at the Victoria University of Wellington. He's also the co-editor of Disastrous Times Beyond Environmental Crisis in Urbanizing Asia and the co-founder of Commoning Ethnography, which is an off-center, annual, international, peer-engaged, open-access, online journal dedicated to examining, criticizing, and redrawing the boundaries of ethnographic research, teaching, knowledge, and praxis. Eli, thanks for accepting my invitation, and welcome to the show. Amir, thank you for having me. It's really lovely to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, likewise. Uh, my first question uh, is a bit odd for me to ask you, Eli, because you and I have been colleagues and, uh, dare I say, friends for the past couple of years. Um, in fact, Eli is now sitting in his office, which is two doors away from me. But I'm asking this question for the sake of our listeners. Um, could you please tell us a bit about your background and you how you ended up as an anthropologist? Yeah, uh, thanks for that. It's, it's actually a really important question for thinking about... Um, the material and citizen designs because the really the origin of my relationship with northeastern thailand stems from my time as a um as an undergraduate a, a student studying abroad uh in that region um at that time i i went to study uh i was interested in development and interested in social change uh and grassroots solutions to questions of poverty and uh, environmental transformation. And there was a program that was run by a, a well-known historian of Thailand called David Strukfus, uh, located at Konkan University uh, in Konkan City, where the book is set. Um, and that was really my introduction to many of the communities that I describe in the book. Uh, what that experience, sort of the, the, the um, that experience it sort of not only introduced me to these communities and the kinds of histories at stake in Thailand, but they also, the experience also really uh, set in motion a set of questions that I had around uh, the making of democracy, the making of social justice, and the ways in which ordinary citizens, um, or really in, in some cases, the, the, the poorest of Thailand citizens were becoming integral to the future of that country's political direction. And in my opinion, actually, the future of how we think about democracy. So starting from that basis, 
I, I was inspired by a number of activist networks that I had encountered when I was a student in Thailand and uh, decided more or less that this was something I, 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 I was driven to understand. I went back to graduate school at UC San Diego, uh, University of California, San Diego, in starting in uh, and 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 undertook uh, a degree of study with actually a number of Latin Americanist scholars uh, who were looking at people like Dr. Nancy, Nancy Postero, uh, James mm -hmm. Holston, who were thinking about uh, the ways in which indigenous activists uh, and the urban poor were actively playing a role in the transformation of citizenship in those countries. And so that the kind of combination uh, helped to enrich my theoretical understanding of the questions that I had about Thailand. Um, and in the course of that, it encouraged me to think about how urban social movements in places like Khan Ken were contributing more widely to the development of Thai democracy. Mm. Um, so you divide the book, Eli, into three main sections, uh, prototypes, assemblies, and fragmentations, right? Um, and I really appreciated the first section, prototypes, where you give an overview of the um, uh, history of the state railway in Thailand and the sort of function it played as a um, kind of nation building project in Thailand and the sort of urban uh, mobilization associated with it. Um, for someone who is not as familiar with the context of uh, infrastructural governance in Thailand and the broader uh, political and economic aspects attached to it. it. It was a really helpful chapter for me to read. It did set the scene um, quite beautifully. So um, for those listeners who, like me, may not be uh, knowledgeable enough about your ethnographic context, uh, could you share with us the significance of Northeastern Thailand to examine such issues within this context? Yeah, that's a great question to, I mean, to start off with, because so much of what the 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 uh, ethnography is driven by is a series of a kind of a series of political debates that uh, evoke histories of um, deliberate underdevelopment and um, as the kind of Thai state, the central Thai state sought to establish hegemony over its regions. Thailand's history, or at least as it's most publicly discussed, is uh, as one of it presents itself as one of the few countries in Southeast Asia to not have been colonized. And in a formal sense, this is true. It never had a foreign colonizer. In a less, in a more complex sense, though, Thailand has had a, been involved in a range of uh, uneven international relationships starting from the middle of the 19th century and extending really through the 20th century. Uh, into the American era in the in the middle of the 20th century, uh, as as the U.S. Uh, military situated itself within Thailand for its to, as a kind of base of operations for its wars in Southeast Asia, and uh, onwards in the kind of glo its entry into the global economy. Mm. Because of that, what 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 becomes evident is that is that what 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 oftentimes is unclear about that uh, history. For outsiders is the way in which the central Thai state had to uh, establish and maintain uh, a kind of sense of Thailand as a unified nation state. Uh, this has a long history, but within that, the portion that I'm quite that that the book focuses on is kind of to 
things. First is uh, the spatial project of creating Thailand through, in many ways, the extension of the railway, of railway technology starting at the beginning of the 20th century, and the way the railway was imagined as a kind of uh, territory-making project. And then on the other hand, the production of a citizenship, a citizenry that recognized itself as Thai first and less so as Lao or as Malay or as Northern Thai, Lana, or uh, another competing uh, ethnicity. So a kind of reorientation towards this kind of nation state central Thai identity. And in fact, both of these projects are, as I describe in the book, intermingled. The the citizen making project and the territory making project and interestingly for me the railway becomes a kind of uh spatial mechanism to think about the relationship between these two histories that history those histories come to bear both on the ways in which the citizens uh the people that i was working with in Konken, the residents of the rail side squatter communities the way that they were uh targeted for uh, pro by projects of improvement to enhance their uh, citizenship uh, through explicit notions of design and aesthetics on the one hand. And then on the other, the spatial constraints within which they could do that, which were governed by the peculiarities of law and spatial organization set up by the railway authority who ended up governing these communities, even though their offices were in, located in Bangkok rather than uh, the kind of regional Konken space. So the communities end up outside of the city in a jurisdictional sense, they end up outside of the city in which they're located. So all these set up, these complexities set up some interesting questions around the nature of citizenship within these railside squatter settlements and the types of forces and ideas about citizenship that have come to bear through the participatory housing projects and the activist networks that uh, form the kind of central organizing material of the book. Uh, and I think this is where your uh, the core conceptual framework of the book sort of comes in, which happens also to be the title of your book, the notion of citizen designs. Uh, can we unpack this a little? What is uh, citizen designs exactly referring to? And how does it manifest, at least in the ethnographic context that you've conducted your research in? Sure. The idea of citizen designs for me, uh, in fact, emerged when I was writing my dissertation as a way of capturing something historical. Uh, and that was the 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 way that the this kind of the formation of the Thai nation state entailed a, a the production of a kind of series of aesthetic dictates around what a modern citizen would look like. So, for example, there, there was a history of laws called the cultural mandates that laid out a series of proclamations or uh, uh, that that had explicit forged explicit connections between things like dress, comportment, family size and national security. Uh, and that history was really interesting to me. Scholars like Lawrence Chua have written about it. Uh, uh, Ajahn Takchalem uh, Tiron has written about it. Um, and the kind of ways in which those histories, uh, uh, sorry, Peter Jackson has explicitly written about the kind of aestheticization mm. of power yeah, in yeah. Thailand. Um, all, all of that is to say that for me, what was really interesting was that actually there's a kind of established way of thinking about citizenship through an aesthetic imagination as something that could be recreated 
by manipulating the way things looked or felt in the world and the, per, the production of a new citizenry. And this isn't a kind of conversation around citizenship that I had really uh, seen in other, in other places. But the more I kind of thought, or the more, the more I kind of uh, considered it, the more I saw the ways in which those legacies of the idea of designing citizenship as a state-centered project were playing out through the urban planning, pro were continuing to play out in different ways and in different idioms and certainly different aesthetic modalities than at the beginning of the 20th century. We're not talking, for example, about the production of uh, modernist buildings, you know, like uh, Lawrence Chua's uh, mm. brilliant history of Bangkok uh, architecture shows. Yeah. We're talking at a kind of a much smaller scale. But nevertheless, what I became interested in was thinking alongside that aesthetic version of citizenship. In a kind of, I don't know if it's a, you know, one of those scholarly forms of serendipity, I, I also became deeply uh, engaged with the thinking of Jacques Ranciere, um, the political theorist, who primarily seeks to understand the ways in which citizenship, or the, the ways in which democracy and, and the political itself are primarily uh, structured by aesthetics, what he calls the distribution of the sensible. That aesthetic structuring is about you know where people appear, who appears as a legitimate citizen and who isn't, whose speech is understandable and whose isn't. Uh, and so the question of inclusion and exclusion for Ranciere is very much about this aesthetic dimension of politics. So the, the kind of convergence of these ideas led me to think, to not only to think historically about citizen designs in Thailand, but to think about them in a present tense sense. The final component of what I think the idea of design does is it actually also reorients our thinking towards the future. So in this context, design was certainly a state-driven state process, but because of the participatory aspect of the urban planning projects that I was studying, I was also engaged with citizen designs as a future-oriented project that both the planners and primarily the residents were engaged in as they sought to reimagine their own place within uh, both the city and the polity. And it's that kind of future-oriented imaginary that I think drove many of the kind of deep political disagreements that structure the book over what democracy looks like, over how different groups of people should be able to participate, over what the venues of participation should be, and over how... Uh, how, in a kind of very material sense, how residents' rights to the city should be structured and administered. So design, for me, captures both of those aspects of that kind of language of citizen design captures both of those aspects of the installation or the 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 uh, uh, administration of particular uh, aesthetically elaborated visions of membership, but also the future oriented, open ended debates around what good citizenship was around what the right organ political organization of the polity was around the meaning of democracy and around its reach and value which have been so central to thai politics for the last 15 uh almost 20 years now so uh, that's citizen designs does a lot of work in that sense drawing these different themes together and making them sort of intelligible within the same register mm. But um, I mean, apart from these two aspects, if it is future, uh, I mean, uh, apart from the future orientedness and the aesthetics of this design uh, in the way that you're talking about, it's also 
I mean, because we are talking about the sort of design that is shaped and influenced, as you said, by different histories, by different um, ideologies, by different cultural values of different citizens. So we are also talking about design in a collective sense, right? And that, I mean, that on the one hand becomes a reflection of the existing power dynamics and existing political orders, while uh, on the other hand could give rise to sort of new forms of power dynamics, new forms of political orders, which could be an extension of the political inequalities or could challenge them. And when we are talking about design in this sense, when the project becomes uh, this collective, and correct me if I'm wrong, it may not be collective, but there ought to be disagreements, there ought to be tensions, there ought to be uh, conflicts, um, which you do in fact discuss in depth in the book. You consider your research an ethnography of disagreements. Uh, so what does an ethnography of disagreement look like? And more importantly, what is its relevance and its importance to the context of uh, Northeastern Thailand? That's such a great way of putting it, that this was a collective uh, set of collective engagements and that dis that design at this level is not a simple, simply a kind of individuated practice. I think just to get to the first part of your question, I think that that is precisely the history of this idea is that design was conceived of as a, that, that these citizen designs were historically conceived of as a, as a centralized political project to produce a docile form of citizenry. Um, uh, that was governable and self-recognized as Thai. Uh, at times that looked different, you know, it's taken different forms at different times. So I talked a little bit about the cultural mandates, uh, but we also see it during the American period, for example, a kind of heavy importance placed on U.S.-based um, uh, interventions around around uh, political training, we'll say, and what the uh, what Michael Kelly Connors calls democratic uh Kind of the dem look, calls the de democratic development and looking at the ways in which people were trained or uh, subjected to democracy as a way of training them to be docile, and that kind of carried on through decades of NGO intervention. So, you know, this design, such this this idea of design is absolutely collective. It's a you're right to point out that it's a paradox then that the book is organized not around homogeneous ideas about how things should look, mm -hmm. but in fact through disagreements over mm -hmm. what they should look like, look like and how they should feel and how things should be governed. The uh the kind of central feature of Thai politics really from I mean for for quite a long time, but especially since the uh, early 1990s onward has been a kind of series of political oscillations between democratic order and authoritarian resurgence. So this actually has a quite a deeper history than the 90s, but mm. then we can take the 90s as a kind of as a kind of yeah. general starting point because that was the period in which democracy had kind of uh, established itself. And for many uh, observers of Thai politics and participants, there was a sense that the 1990s had inaugurated a period in which democracy would would be firmly uh, established and would, uh, in, in the words of some political science, would begin consolidating itself as a political form. Mm. So, so, somewhat surprising to many observers of Thai politics then was in the 2006 coup, where close to a decade and a half of democratic order was unwound overnight with the ouster of uh, the popular Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat. That coup set off a period of beginning really with the kind of inauguration of, of, of my own project, 
that was encapsulated by a series of social movements that were competing over visions of the polity. Some people will recognize them in the form of the kind of oscillations between uh, yellow shirt, uh, conservative royalist social movements and red shirted pro-democracy social movements that were driven by the urban poor, the rural poor, working classes and regional citizens in northeastern Thailand who often had felt excluded from that, uh, the kind of forms of hegemonic central Thainess that had been uh, enforced for so long. So what we see from really 2008 onwards is these kinds of this ongoing mass debate around democratic politics. And this was all taking place during the kind of most concentrated period of my field work, which took place between 2008 and 2010. During that period, there were these punctuated street protests uh, in which these different groups would take over aspects of urban space. So, but I wasn't situated among those groups necessarily, although I wasn't situated in that context. Within the communities along the railroad tracks, there were diverse ideas about these different protests. There were diverse ideas and attitudes towards the military. There were diverse ideas and attitudes towards working with the government or resisting them. There was diverse ideas and attitudes about uh, almost everything, in fact. And mm. what I found is that the urban planning project, this this the this project that was the, called the Ban Men Kong Stable Housing Project, which was passed in 2000 and 2000 as a kind of participatory mechanism uh, to include the urban poor in housing in housing improvements during the toxin the era of toxins government became a venue in which all of these different debates that were animating the Thai state's political structures and its changes at large were being enacted, discussed, uh, and uh, you know tested on the ground by many of these residents who were often, and these were often the people that within the public sphere were being told or were being labeled as anti-democratic, incapable of participating in the polity, incapable of having their own ideas, uh, not knowing how to interact with democracy and therefore requiring further interventions from the military. Um, So for me, those disagreements and not just the ones about the polity at large, but the ones about very specific debates over urban space, debates over leadership along the tracks mm-hmm. and disagreements about how political strategies for organizing communities became representative of the complex effects of when citizens begin to see themselves and their own fates as being attached to democracy. Mm. So, so in a way, um, disagreement becomes a way through which citizen designs are expressed by residents. Am I right? Yeah, precisely. And, and, and in fact, it's this, it's, it's the countervailing forces within uh, historical discourses around the right or the, the kind of right or correct political order in Thailand, which should be harmonious, peaceful, docile, and unified that oftentimes ended up resulting in the, inherent disagreements as people tried to sort through these quite complex conditions being labeled as uh, pathologies rather than Mm. being seen as constitutive of the country's political order. For Mm. me, that's the reason that disagreement becomes a narrative device or a way of uh, 
a way of composing an ethnography was because it was precisely the thing that most people were trying that that many forces were trying including the military uh, mm. as well were trying to um squash you know there was an effort to control disagreement to I- ignore it to erase it but ironically or sadly maybe the uh the very force that was bringing people together that was enabling uh, all this kind of interesting work to take place along the tracks, all these improvements in houses, these debates over budgeting, these conversations around, uh, and probably most importantly, conversations around land rights and, and the achievement of durable land rights for some only took place through very intense and complex debates. So as a scholar, what that meant for me was to think, was was it, it proposed the question of how does one think through disagreement as something that builds in the world rather than something that corrodes uh, social formation. Mm. Uh, and, and you mentioned earlier um, um, the um, 2014 coup that, and how it changed all this. So could you, could you tell us a bit more about that? And more importantly, what became of this community after the coup? Because you, you, your research sort of spans uh, through that period, right? Yeah, so the so the bulk the kind of initial stage of the fieldwork this this is obviously a book as, as I mentioned that came out of my dissertation uh took place uh in the shadow of the 2006 coup and the results of that were both those social movements that I was mentioning uh and an eventual uh, you know that that entailed a number of complicated uh, judicial politics and complicated ju- electoral politics and judicial politics that I describe in the book, uh, but eventually uh, a kind of return to electoral democracy by 2011. In in that uh, election, Yingluck Shinawat was elected. She was uh, largely seen, especially by conservatives, as a successor to um, her brother Toxin's regime. But she achieved the same kind of, maybe a similar level of popularity uh, and uh, among Toxin's previous constituencies, uh, and therefore sparked a similar level of animosity among the existing conservative uh, forces within Thailand. So in 2013, there are kind of remarkably similar events, uh, snap election and another conservative urban occupation uh, that uh, sort sort of that 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 eventually lead to the a kind of a stalemate um, and a return and, and the return or the the reemergence of the of the Thai military which steps in uh, and uh, ousts Yingluck's government in May of 2014. That had really important implications because where my dissertation research stopped, it seemed as though uh, tense as it was and imperfect as it was, there were disagreement had kept the door open for kind of a wider return to democratic political order. But by 2014 uh, and the reemergence of the coup, there's a sense that not only not only a sense, a kind of a, a widespread social sense, but a direct message from the coup leaders that the government had that the military had stepped in precisely to because there was too much democracy you know Mm, 
that mm. the political political life had become too untethered for for the military that the country was being destabilized by its politics uh and that the military would return order and peace to the country in their words uh quickly now mm. uh we are you know uh, n- nearly a decade on from that intervention and there has been uh, a nominal return to electoral democracy in Thailand, but the same military leader that led the coup in 2014 uh, is the prime minister of Thailand, uh, Prayut Chanocha, and uh, that's had certain important political implications broadly in the country. Locally in Konken, um, one of the most important things that happened was that the rise of the military enabled the narrowing of political disagreement and the narrowing of participation around really important infrastructural projects, namely um, the development of uh, elevated rail tracks through the center, center of Konkan City and uh, the construction of a new high-speed rail project that also runs parallel along the same space of land where these residents live. So what that did was it ended it ended in uh and it ended up initiating a number of evictions though not complete evictions along the tracks uh but particularly for communities that lacked legal protection under the frameworks that i described mm. uh, throughout the book so on the one hand i think this could be read as a, an erasure uh certainly a suppression of the kinds of political aspirations that really drive the vast majority of the text but on the other hand what I think attention to the future-oriented possibilities of politics and the future-oriented visions of citizenships still to come does is it made available it made it available for uh, it made it possible for me to speak with residents about their future hopes for politics and despite their sense of constraint, increasing precariousness in the city, uh, and their uh, diminished capacities to publicly participate in ways that they had used to secure their land for the vast majority of the, the last several, several decades, They many still felt their own ability to think independently to and to disagree and to enact their own political aspirations remained intact. And so in that sense, what disagreement becomes is it serves as a nar- it serves a narrative function in the ethnography, but it also uh, propels a kind of set of techniques that are actually indelible uh, to the human is our capacity to disagree. Hmm. And the residents were acutely aware of this, and they felt as though, and for many of them, they said as much that that the coup wouldn't be able to erase the progress that they had made and their revisioning of their own lives. Uh, so although they were deeply critical of it, uh, they also managed to to carve out spaces of praxis that sought to preserve politics and to extend their political capacities in ways that they had already been working for the for the previous uh, during the previous period. Um, here is a tough question for you, Eli. Uh, where do we go from here? In Thailand, uh, the history of disagreement really. Uh, expanded through the student movements that began in 2020 and have continued uh, in in quite bold and direct confrontations uh, throughout the last two years. 
those student movements pick up the history of organizing that I describe in the book, but also have transformed it in very important ways and enacted increasingly bold confrontations with the kind of quasi-elected, uh, quasi-military state. What I take, though, from the ground and from, from my relationships in Khan Ken and my and the research itself is that in the face of creeping and expanding authoritarianism, uh, the indelible sense of our capacities to disagree is a, a kind of a fundamental part of whatever our political futures are. And two, within those capacities to disagree as a kind of central organizing feature of human life, uh, that are uh, that are re- that within those capacities to disagree, what rests our capacity to also uh, imagine and enact new political futures, to think them through together and to attempt to enact them not outside of disagreement, but in them. And in this, I sort of see Thailand not at the, I, mean, I think the, the history of, of studies of democracy have often characterized places like Thailand as being at the lagging edge of democracy. But mm. for much of this study, I've, I've oftentimes said, felt that it was politically at the vanguard both because of the kind of uh, ways in which authoritarian authoritarianism kind of reemerged uh, quite publicly, showing us the fragility of dem- democratic governance, uh, but also because of the ways in which people insisted on and have continued to rethink democracy as an open form and therefore to engage in politics uh, so as to preserve and to expand it. Uh, and to expand the number of people included in it. And I, and, and again, I see these student movements as being uh, an essential part of that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't, for me, that, that, that sense of disagreement, that capacity to disagree and to collectively reimagine keeps the door open and, and I think preserves the possibility of a more just future uh, despite or and, and oftentimes because of the increasingly constrained context within which it grows. I'm not sure if that's a sense of hope uh, or hope, or if that's a hopeful conclusion. It's not my, it's not certainly not my intention to be rosy with it, but it does mm-hmm. offer, I think, a sense of possibility even, uh, or especially when things seem to be uh, quite foreclosed. Yeah. Yeah, with possibility comes hope, I guess. So let's be hopeful. Um, as a sort of a final question, I would also like to know about your uh, methodology, uh, Eli. Mm. I mean, how did you go about conducting the research? How um, and, and and could you share with us uh, perhaps some of the challenges you faced or some of the rewarding moments you experienced? Any advice you might have for, especially our young listeners, especially those who might be thinking about your um, about doing ethnographic research. And uh, most importantly, and perhaps more anthropologically, how your positionality fits into all this. Uh, I, I'm reading this uh, quote from your book, which sort of stayed with me, and, and it's made me think about my own ethnographic practices, where, where uh, one of your participants uh, tells you, it's easy to do work like you do, just sitting around listening to people I have to go and solve these problems. Yeah, that was such one of those moments uh, in doing ethnographic research where somebody uh, clarifies very quickly their understanding of who you are in that space and mm. kind of puts it at your feet to say, well, what's your what's what's your relationship to these questions? 
and it's a and, and I I included the conversation in the book precisely because it lays out the both the privilege and the contingency of who I was in that space, being able to move across different sorts of groups, oftentimes groups that had strong or uh, specific oppositions to one another, and to think across and through disagreement. So I came into, uh, as I said, my entree into the railway communities occurred in two different directions. Uh, one was through connections I had, I had made as a student, and then the other was through um, uh, channels that I had, uh, had been opened up to me through the organization that I had come to study, the Community Organizations Development Institute. And these mm -hmm. two different channels had different ideas about the right way to improve life's along, life along the tracks, uh, different kinds of visions of uh, different citizen designs, to use the term in the book, um, and different relations with the state. One was a kind of NGO-driven, non-governmental driven activist organization, and the other was a state was a state policy. Working on both of those ends enabled me to 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 kind of move through the project within these spaces of disagreement uh, without having to settle on any one side of things. And I I don't say that. I try to be clear that I'm not saying this as a kind of claim to objectivity. I don't think that's what was at work, mm. but what it did was open up the possibility of seeing disagreement as a force that was critical to making things happen. My own sense of where I was located was oftentimes as somebody who was concerned or had interested in the interested in, and engaged with residents and, and uh, people's aspirations to make life better through their work on the ground uh, in whatever ways that that meant. Uh, and that has often raised questions that I continue to think about in terms of my own role in relationship to those questions. Mm -hmm. I don't think any ethnographer uh, escapes that. It's a it's an open ethical challenge to the kinds of work that we do. What are our relationships? Uh, and that's in part because that's an open ethical challenge to all human relationships, but mm -hmm. it's specifically potent in the kinds of extractive possibilities that ethnography carries with it mm. um there's obviously a lot more in the book and i encourage listeners to pick up a copy but before we wrap up the interview i'd like to ask eli whether you're working on something right now or are you thinking about uh doing your research on a particular topic in the near future yeah my ongoing research uh takes some of the themes um the themes around aesthetics architecture infrastructure uh and politics and turns them towards questions of environmental transformation in uh in thailand i'm currently uh really since 2014 i've been conducting uh research tracing out the political environmental and economic histories of concrete and over the years it's become what i'm calling a, a speculative I'm, I'm writing what i call a speculative earth history of thai concrete uh as a way mm. of finding a new way to think through the relationship between urbanization, uh, infrastructure, and planetary environmental change. So that's taken me to all kinds of diverse sites like uh, uh, cement quarries, factories, um, Bangkok's urban planning offices, um, the kind of receding mangrove edges of, Bangkok, of Southern Bangkok, um, and 
further afield to places like uh, architectural offices and designers offices where uh, the design professions are trying to imagine cities beyond concrete or the, you know, kind of the future of the flooded Thai city. So using concrete as a figure in that case to think through uh, the environmental future of urban Southeast Asia is kind of where my work now lies. And I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying that project uh, quite a bit. It's forcing mm. me into kind of whole new series of um, intellectual and conceptual challenges. Yeah, yeah. Please share that with us whenever it's out, so that we could also enjoy. Um, <laughs> Eli, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your wonderful, wonderful work with our listeners. I really enjoyed reading the book, but I enjoyed it even more to um, discuss it with you. So thank you for that. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Amir. I really appreciate it. <laughs>